Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs and your host. In this episode, Wisdom Labs' Michael Taft interviews Lori Swanbeck. Lori is a senior faculty member at Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, as well as a curriculum contributor and facilitator at LinkedIn, Purpose Blue, Wisdom Labs, Mindfulness Rx, and the Mindfulness Training Institute. Lori holds an MA in Psychology from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology and is a certified mindfulness teacher trained by Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock through the Greater Good Science Center. And now, Lori Schwanbeck, interviewed by Michael Taft. Lori, welcome to the Wise at Work podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's so nice to have you here. Your work lately in compassion and emotional intelligence has really come to our attention as you're doing such good work at LinkedIn and other companies worldwide to kind of bring in this idea of the importance of, let's say, contrasting to mindfulness instead of like clarifying and focusing and opening the mind more like clarifying and opening the heart. Yes, that's well said. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What is this compassion stuff? And as a business person or as in someone in the work world, why would I want to bring this into my company? Such big questions. I think that compassion really is a practice and an action that supports relationships. And the business, regardless of what we're doing, requires a successful relationship, whether it's with our coworkers, with our direct reports, with our bosses, with our clients and customers. Being aware of the importance of relationship and tending to that intentionally is really the area of compassion. So there's been a lot of studies that point to the physiological impact of compassion practice. And we're also looking now at the effect in businesses, in organizations, in communities of being intentional with how we're showing up with each other. And can you tell us some of these effects? Like what does it do? Maybe before I talk about that, let's talk about what compassion is. Yeah, you know, for me, when I first heard the word, it sounded like we're kind of supposed to be sloppy, drippy, (laughs) over-emoting or something. But I take it that is not what you're describing. That's not what I'm describing. There's a misperception that compassion is, I heard Dan Goldman actually refer to it, people think that it's Sunday school sweetness, meaning that it's this kind of niceness, as you say, this drippy syrupiness. And really what compassion is, the working definition I use, is it's the capacity to have awareness of others, a mindset of kindness, and the courage to take action. So within that definition, the capacity piece is so important because if I am stressed, distracted, focused only on myself, my capacity is very limited. And then we look at these other three components and awareness of others, right? How often are we aware of others? Most of the time we're lost in our own worlds. My agenda, my suffering, my desire for my own well-being. So our world becomes very myopic and we're lost on our devices a lot of times. So being aware of others and a mindset of kindness as opposed to judgment, as opposed to comparing, so that openness in the mind. And then the courage to take action when needed. And I say courage because 
the movement towards someone who might be struggling in some way does require courage because it's human nature to want to turn away from what is hard in ourselves and other people, right? So when you look at that definition, it's not about necessarily being nice. It's about attention, paying attention, being intentional, watching the mindset, being more open in the mind, and the willingness to take a stand, to engage with others. So why is that important in the business world? The world of work is a world of relationships. We are relating to others all the time. And as humans, if we feel connected with, we feel not judged, and we have the sense of someone kind of as an ally or taking a stand, those three components of compassion, we're more likely going to feel the desire to collaborate, Our anxiety levels will go down, which will allow us to access more of the creative parts of our brain. We'll feel what is called psychological safety in the workplace. So we'll be able to feel more comfortable taking risks. That spurs innovation. So there's a whole host of reasons why compassion in the workplace is really advantageous. Something I think is very interesting there is that usually we think of compassion as an emotion, and yet it sounds like there's more going on there than just a feeling. There's this readiness to take action, to actually do something, which seems more than just kind of strictly an emotion. Yeah, it's a good distinction. And I think if we look at the relationship between thoughts, behavior, and emotion, certainly when we feel an emotion, we're more likely to take action. So if I feel angry, I'm more likely to be aggressive. If I feel a warmth in my heart or a joy, I'm more likely to take an action of kindness. But interestingly, it also works the other way around. When we act a certain way, that also generates emotions in us. So the work of Tanya Singer and the Max Planck Institute in Germany showed that when we actually have the mindset and do take action, it has a feedback of us feeling better. So the action actually generates the emotion. So it's an interesting feedback loop. And with that, we see that acting kindly towards others, acting compassionately towards others or with generosity generates the well-being circuitry in the brain more than any other action. And that's something that came out of Richie Davidson, who's a neuroscientist. His work showed that these pro-social acts have the effect of feeling good for us. It's so fascinating. So it's not that we have to start out feeling so good and then we're doing stuff for others. We can actually just take the actions of helping other people and it starts the cascade of us feeling better and actually helping ourselves as well. And then we can begin to take even further action. Yeah, there's an interesting ripple effect that affects the giver of an act of kindness or compassion. It feels good. It feels good from a neurochemical perspective. When we take actions of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, it releases oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine in the brain. Also, oxytocin specifically releases nitric oxide, and that actually dilates the blood vessels. And that feeling of warmth we get, that good feeling is good for the heart. So an act of generosity, kindness, and compassion feels good for us. And, of course, 
it's good for the recipient. But there's also a ripple effect and a larger impact, which is really interesting. So in workplaces or anywhere, if I'm acting kindly, I take an act of generosity, I pause, I listen to someone instead of hurrying by them in the coffee room, just that creates contagion. It creates behavioral contagion. So other people are witnessing it. So it feels good for people who are observing an act of kindness. And interestingly, it also has a neurophysiological contagion. So brain studies show that if I'm observing somebody having or experiencing the benefits of kindness, those same chemicals are released in my own brain. Mm-hmm. So if we want to create cultures of connection, caring, and kindness in our workplace, we're really leveraging what might be called the bystander effect, right? We are impacted by other people's behavior. And so people having evolved in groups, yes, we kind of come pre-equipped with all these responses that we can leverage to make a workplace much happier and healthier, right, without as much trouble. It's like we're not booting it from scratch. Exactly. We've got the wiring here, but it takes intention to activate this wiring. We all have this innate capacity for compassion. And it benefits from intentional cultivation, which means paying attention to others, which means watching your own mindset. Are you defaulting into judgment or comparison? Or can you generate good wishes for someone? The default of not paying attention or acting because I'm too busy, I'm too overwhelmed, the rushing that most of us are doing in our lives. Those are the conditions that prevent the action of connection, compassion. So we have to be aware that this is an innate skill and it benefits from active cultivation. So because this is not the norm in our business culture currently, I'm curious if you could give us some examples, just the most concrete, simple examples of what this might look like. Because I think that Sometimes the idea is, oh, I have to kind of switch out of work mode and have this maybe awkward moment where I'm asking somebody something that might be too personal. You know, people might have trouble understanding how to begin to actually do this in a concrete way. So could you give us some examples of how one might begin to be more compassionate in the workplace in like an appropriate way? (laughs) Where I always start when I'm working with a person or an organization is really pointing to what's already here. So I will always ask people, when was a time where you gave and it felt good? And most of the time, we can remember those times when we extended ourselves and recognize, oh, I actually already do this and it feels good. And that could be I actually paused to listen when someone was talking and I didn't have my phone on. And, you know, that kind of looking at somebody in the eyes and checking your phone and then looking and checking. Just that active presence can be an act of compassion, a gift. So giving someone just the gift of your attention in a really unbroken manner. Exactly. It could be when you're with a client, when you ask them how their day is, that that's not just a reflexive question that you then hurry on with your sales pitch that you actually pause to take a moment to let it in. 
it could be like, what does it feel like to ask someone, can I get you a coffee when I'm just going to the break room? That's not necessarily compassion, but it's kindness. Mm -hmm. It's awareness of someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I think to be aware that there are these opportunities, these micro moments, as Barbara Fredrickson, who's an emotion researcher and psychologist, looks at these micro moments of opportunities of connection and paying attention to them and really being present. And those micro moments might be an opportunity to just listen. It might be to help someone. It might be to give somebody some feedback that maybe might be even hard to give, but that can be an act of compassion as well because it's in support of their growth as an employee, as a teammate, but really looking where are the opportunities, these micro moments for connection, and how can I extend into them? Mm -hmm. So here you are traveling globally, setting up compassion programs in organizations and companies that I presume already want this. They know they want this. What are you showing them how to do? Or what do you build into an organization to help cultivate kindness, compassion, and so on? And I think it really depends on the institution. There's so much awareness now. So when I go to a company, I really explore for them like what the values are for them as a company. And there's many layers of values. There's the organizational value of what impact that organization wants to have in the world beyond just the bottom line. There is looking at how they want to care for their employees and create cultures of positivity, of well-being, of engagement. And then there's the individual team leads or managers and how they want the individual to feel and how they want engagement to increase at an individual level. So there's a lot of layers that I'll look at. And everywhere I go, people recognize the need for people to have a purpose-driven life. That's just increasing all over the planet. And so we'll explore what that means to each organization. So you're referring to the research that shows that, for example, people will do a lot more work in a much happier way if they feel they're doing it for something they believe in instead of just trading it for dollars. Exactly. Yeah. And it might be easy to see, like for the United Nations, for example, that I'm working for a mission-driven organization. And even when we work in organizations where it's not so overtly mission-driven, how can we create a sense of purpose within whatever it is that we're doing? And that is very much connected to how we treat each other at work, right? There's an opportunity to create meaning and purpose by the impact we have on each other. So even if the organization isn't overtly mission-driven, we can bring those same qualities of wanting to make a difference within each interaction that we have at work. And that's incredibly engaging. And that creates cultures of well-being, cultures of engagement, where people's commitment to what they're doing vastly increases. So just to press a little further into this, here you go into Spacely Sprockets, right? <laughs> and they make sprockets. Yes. And it's sprockets for everything. So we'll just assume that for most people that doesn't feel very mission-driven mm -hmm. beyond just creating a good product or whatever. So how would you help them to look at how they interact to see it in a more meaningful way? 
I'll speak to generally who it is that brought me in, and it could be a senior leader. And usually people who are curious about this, it touches in their own humanity. They recognize, wow, I'm here in this world of work, and I want to not only make the best spacely sprocket, I also want to have a workplace where people can thrive. And increasingly, managers are recognizing that. So I will ask them about why that matters to them. What are their values that would make them curious about what it means to bring in an emotional intelligence program oriented around compassion, kindness, generosity, and map it onto their values and see that there's actually very tangible, specific practices that will not be too airy-fairy, but very practical that their direct reports, their employees, their coworkers, their colleagues can do. And then it becomes contagious. People are happier. People are more engaged. And then it doesn't matter if you have the best sprocket, but you're more committed to the organization because people are happy there. How do you see compassion impacting resilience and also actually health? So when we move through the world looking at people as competition, as other, it's very stressful. And the impact on our physical, emotional, and relational well-being is very high when we're in that state. Really, it's about a separation. I really need a proving instead of a connecting environment. So with a generation of compassion and orientation outside of myself, the interpersonal, the connection benefits are supportive for me in the workplace. I feel like I've got allies. I feel the benefit of shared joy, shared connection. And at a physical level, the diminishment of stress generates a lot of positivity in the body. So the benefits to our physicality in terms of mood, in terms of heart health, there's also some research that shows that the telomeres or the ends of the DNA is also protected by compassion practice in that it is less likely to diminish, which happens with aging. So there's some protective benefit on aging. I mean, really, Michael, when we look at it, we are a social species, and there's such a mistake in thinking that we have to be the lone cowboy or cowgirl and strive for our own self-interest. We are wired to be aware of others and rewarded when we take care of other people. So it's good for our emotional health, our relational health, our physical health, and it's good for our organizations as well. So it's fascinating that you're talking quite a bit about the body here and how compassion, kindness affect the body. In a way, I think when people think of mindfulness, they think of the mind. It's even called mindfulness. You're doing something with your mind. You're focusing and so on. And sure, it calms you down. But I think the idea is the mind. And we know from mindfulness training that's not really true. You're doing a tremendous amount of work with the body. But I'm curious about the embodiment angle with compassion and how you bring the body in, mm -hmm. in what you're showing people. 
Yes, mindfulness is such a misnomer because the mind or the brain extends through the body, through the nervous system. And I found that in order to be, again, going back to our definition of compassion, aware, a mindset of kindness and the courage to take action, the way we hold our bodies can very much support that. There's this whole field called embodied cognition that shows that not just that our mind affects our body, but how we hold our body affects our mind and our emotions as well. So if we're on our devices, we're really in this collapsed place a lot. You know, if you go ahead and do this, like the keyboard movement is really the shoulders crunched in and our breathing is shortened and our world becomes a little more myopic. Our body's kind of hunched forward and looking down, so we're kind of collapsed. Yeah, there's a contraction and collapse. And if you just lift your head up a little bit, pull your shoulders back, you can start to feel your breathing changes right away, right? It kind of opens up the lower belly. Opens up the lower belly and your head lifts. And as a human being, as a homo sapien, it allows us to have more awareness, right? So that's the first step of compassion and awareness. We also, when our belly softens, we are less in a position of anxiety. When the breath is short or contracted, that's a body posture associated with anxiety. So when we are able to lower our diaphragm, soften the belly, it's easier for us to see others and generate thoughts of kindness, of not seeing people as other or such a threat. And then with the body a little more upright and feeling our spine a little more elongated, this is the body posture of courage. When we are contracted and hunched over, we are in a state of aversion or contraction. So this upright, uplifted, expanded state is very much like when you hold that for a moment, you begin to feel that it's possible for you to take action to maybe have the courage to ask someone how they're doing when you know that they've been struggling a little bit on a project. You might have the courage to check in with someone at work who you know is marginalized for some reason, whether it's neurodiversity or some other diversity different than the norm experience that they're having. You begin to notice and you begin to feel your own capacity to take action. Good. So most of the examples that you've been giving involve doing something for another person. What about self-compassion? Can we do any of this just for ourselves? It's so important to do it for ourselves. And with the research of Kristen Neff, she's really looking at how self-compassion can be operationalized. And the self-compassion definition is, you know, first, mindfulness, the ability to be aware of what's happening, so not turning away from or avoiding your own distress. The second part is the common humanity, recognizing that we're all connected and we have common human experiences. And then the third question of what do I most need, that place of kindness towards myself, And the ability to generate self-compassion for ourselves is vital in our ability to truly be compassionate for others. Because if we go back to that definition that I have been speaking about, that capacity, compassion is a capacity. If I am 
in a place of rejecting my own difficulties, unable to really look at what's hard or what might benefit from my own care in my own life, it's going to be very hard for me to be with other people who might be having difficulties. So self-compassion actually is a practice that helps us regulate our own emotional states. And when our own emotional states are regulated, we're more able to have the capacity to meet others. And sometimes that means actually setting boundaries. So again, compassion is not doing everything for everybody else. It's actually recognizing that in order to be compassionate, I have to take care of myself as well. So that might mean saying no when I know it's going to disappoint someone. It might mean having the courage to say something to someone that I might be worried about how they're going to take it because I might be concerned that will lead them to not like me, for example. These are all compassionate actions towards myself. When I can do that here to myself, I'm much more likely going to be able to be skillful in meeting other people who need support. And that's something that we can all do right now for ourselves in whatever situation we're in, right? Regardless of whether our workplace supports doing that on a higher level or not, on a more team or company level, we can all be at least more compassionate to ourselves and hopefully the others around us. You have an audio series called Compassion in Action. Can you just briefly characterize those programs for us? They sound really interesting. The series that I have developed is really in response to the misperception that compassion is about being syrupy and about being overly nice. And I started with really looking at how compassion starts with an intention to pay attention. And Jane Dutton, who wrote the book Awakening Compassion at Work and is part of the Center for Positive Organizations at the Ross School for Business, she says that in order to bring compassion to work, we have to be first-class noticers. And so I start with a practice of noticing. Like, how do we notice the world around us? We're so lost in the virtual world, our own stories. How do we actually just notice what's happening? So that's the first step. Then, how do we generate a mindset of kindness? What does that mean to actually step in another person's shoes and not see them from a judgmental lens, especially people who are different than us. And I move through and look at how compassion requires the development of self-compassion, that self-compassion, as I've mentioned, is a really impactful practice in regulating emotions. And in order to be with another person who's going through difficulty, we have to be able to regulate our own emotions. And looking at fierce compassion, how we take a stand for someone. What does it mean to take a stand and become an ally for others? And there's this recognition too, Michael, that I wrap up the course with this recognition that we're all connected, right? And that doesn't have to necessarily be a spiritual thing. It's just very pragmatically that if I take an action of kindness, compassion, and generosity, it's creating a ripple effect. It feels good for me feels good for the other person, and it creates an organization, a culture within an organization, within a world where we're leveraging the very best of what it means to be human, 
we feel more engaged. Benefits the bottom line, of course, too, because an engaged employee will want to give back, will want to give their best at work. And we're seeing that increasingly in every organization I work with, that leveraging the best of being human has benefits for the bottom line even. I noticed also that you have individual sessions on awe and the senses. And I'm curious, you know, that's a great topic. And yet, how does it relate to what we've been talking about? How does awe and the senses, how do those topics relate to compassion? Thank you for the question, Michael. I have been very curious myself on how we can intentionally open the heart and incline the mind to these states that are very positive. And so from an interpersonal perspective, we might say, oh, compassion, the act of caring, of extending to another person is very beneficial for the collective, for us. And the intentional inclining of our mind towards what brings a sense of joy and wonder and curiosity, really the realm of awe, is very nourishing for ourselves as well. So it's really about the intentional action through compassion and inclining the mind towards those moments where we feel something greater than ourselves. We look at the sunset, we look at a towering redwood, and those states of awe are very beneficial for how we process information. When we are locked in our to-do list or the cognitive parts of our brain, we're only accessing a very limited capacity of our processing ability. When we connect to other humans through compassion, our ability to be effective in the world is amplified. When we connect to states such as awe or beauty, we're amplifying what it means to be human as well. So we feel good, our mind is brighter, we have more access to intuition through accessing the senses. There's a whole data stream that's happening through our senses all the time, but we're over-indexing on thinking. We're over-indexing on self-promotion. And so the range of what our experience of being human is narrowing. So these states of compassion, awe, sensory activation, beauty, they are expanding our world. When our world is expanded, we feel better emotionally. We're more engaged in what we're doing. We have more access to creativity, to what might be called intuition. So the ripple effects of these states of mind are very beneficial. That's fabulous. Thank you so much, Lori. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you, Michael. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. 
Thanks for listening.